0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: So?
2: She's not coming. Mm. I'm sorry, Lou. The old guy's got her scared to death. Yeah, that I could tell by the time I got to page 10 of her novel. Love and hate, all wrapped up in one neat package. So stick around another day. I can't, Jerry. I promised Mary and the kids I'd spend some time up at the lake. Yeah, but you are going to show Anglinder the book. Soon as I get back. You're sure it's all right with the author, I mean? Yeah, why wouldn't it be all right? Look, Lou, Vicky's another Ayn Rand trying to bust loose from her cocoon. You and me are going to help her. Me? I understand. I'm a literary agent. What's your angle?
1: Personal. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 16, 2013. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything will be alright. So what's my angle? It's personal. It's our 300th episode today, and I decided to be totally selfish. That's what I'm doing today, hogging the whole show to myself today. And I think I'm just going to empty my brain of all that clutter that's been building up over some of the current events and debates I've been watching both in the public media and within my own circle of friends and acquaintances. It's kind of the same anywhere. If I get time at the end of the show, I'll tell you what Robert Vaughn's up to and what's happening with Just Right, because there's been a lot of developments lately, and I'm hoping to have some time to discuss that, but can't guarantee that for sure. You know, in, in considering what I was going to be doing on this 300th show, I, I, I went all over the place, thought we might do a best of, thought we might do, you know, a sort of a special... I thought we'd just carry on, because maybe do an overview of, you know, that's life. What is life all about to most people? And it's fascinating what what evolved out of just some of the conversations and debates I got into on the weekend. You know, Ayn Rand was right. It is self-interest versus altruism, good versus evil, morality versus immorality, right versus wrong. These things are all intricately related, and yet they can be as distinct from each other as night and day which of course are also intricately related if you think about it. Some things are black and white, and today I'm going to take us all on a ride towards knowledge and understanding about some of these issues, a journey that I think must first begin with our misunderstanding of these issues. Religious intrinsicism and nihilistic subjectivism have so much permeated our discussions of morality, you know, of good and evil, that having a rational discussion on the issue is kind of a rare thing indeed, because all sorts of other non-issues get brought into the conversation you know in the metaphysical world of dieting it was once assumed that all cholesterol was bad cholesterol then apparently they discovered there was good cholesterol and the philosophy of dieting changed overnight a similar thing is only now beginning to happen in the epistemological world of morality selfishness is bad we've been taught And being good is about sharing with others and sacrifice and altruism. Well, it's long past time that we relearn a fundamental truth, that there is a good form of selfishness, critical to our very survival, and that altruism and sharing can be as evil and as immoral and as destructive an act as we were once taught selfishness was. That's the conclusion at which we hope to arrive by the end of our 300th broadcast of Just Right Today. And I know from years of experience that these ideas and Moral conclusions shake the very foundations of what a lot of people are still being taught or deduce on their own about life itself and the morality that's necessary to live that life. So have you heard the one about the rational objectivist, the libertarian subjectivist, and the religious intrinsicist who tried to have a conversation? No? Well, it figures. It can't happen. The only thing you'd get is three conversations. And you never get a conversation. Our journey in the right direction today begins with a very innocent and impulsive comment I posted to Facebook on the weekend regarding gun control and, believe it or not, libertarians. I simply posted a five-sentence thought that it, had that it occurred to me before I lost the idea. I happened to be one of my rare, on one of my rare visits to Facebook. Uh, those of you who are my Facebook friends, you know I'm not there that often. And uh, I'm trying to trying to clean up my act a bit. But while I was there, I thought this would be a handy place to write my idea down before I forgot about it. And this is what I wrote. It was just a little comment. Shooting from the hip on libertarians. With their tolerance and embrace of anarchy and other contradictory political ideas, libertarians are the gun control advocates of politics, even though they oppose gun con- gun control for individuals. The gun prohibitionist would rather eliminate the object guns from society than eliminate the ideas and behavior of those who use that object for purposes other than the defense of life, liberty, and property. In precisely the same way, the libertarian would rather eliminate the object, government, from society than eliminate the evil philosophies and behavior of those who use that object to violate life, liberty, and property. The consequence in both scenarios is the same. Evil the irrational, is left free to terrorize the good. The rational, while the good is left defenseless against the aggressor. This is why the philosophies of both groups are anti-life. And that was my post, put it on, put it on my Facebook. And I got a response from, I got one supporter there, Andrew. I'm not going to be using last names, because, you know, they didn't agree to go public. But he just said, uh, you know, he said, I've already rejected the Rothbardian anarchic or other anti-government view. But this was like the final nail in the coffin because it highlights the fact that the problem is not politics, but epistemology. Right on, Andrew. That's exactly what it is. The gun control analogy hammers down the nail because that makes it very concrete to understand the epistemologic folly of the libertarians. They want to eliminate government because it's an instrument of force, like a gun, like an object, instead of eliminating force as the primary to eliminate force requires its total monopoly barring self-defense, which of course is one of the things a lot of libertarians are opposed to then of course I got some opposition and that's what got us going today, and the first one was from, you guessed it, a libertarian his name's Zach, and he responded, he said irrationality is evil hardly irrationality can be and is often benign Evil refers to the use of violence, fraud, and coercion against an innocent. So I'm sitting there looking at this comment on my Facebook, and I'm thinking, well, I couldn't leave that comment just hanging there on my Facebook page, so I felt obligated to set the record straight, in case anyone might think that I agree with that sentiment. I'm actually glad Zach raised the issue, because it's far more than semantics, and it got me started on the theme of our show today, because... These and the other ideas and comments we'll be hearing later are so common and so prevalent wherever these issues come up. So it's not about these people, it's about these ideas. And I replied to Zach, I said, sorry Zach, irrationality is never benign. One does not measure good and evil on the grounds of any quantity, that is the actual harm done by it. A person who intends to murder someone for personal gain is no less evil just because he failed at the attempt. As well, good and evil are concepts that apply to a man alone on an island. One can harm oneself just as easily as one can harm others. The cause is ultimately the same in the context of this discussion. Evil. There's no religious connotation to be assumed here at all. Evil is that which is harmful to one's own life and by extension to the lives of others, while good is that which fosters life and happiness. I've actually discussed this issue many times on Just Right, especially in the episodes where Scottish philosopher John McMurray comes up. McMurray reminds us that only one who is rational is capable of being irrational. The actions that have been described, violence, force, and fraud, are criminal actions, whether you want to consider them legal or not, while the individuals perpetrating them are evil if they are irrational. Using violence may also be good if its use is rational and exercised in the defense of life, liberty, and property. The violence, fraud, and coercion argument is an age-old leftist libertarian trap that completely avoids the essential. Don't fall into it. Some things are black and white, and the objective concepts of good and evil are among them. Period. So, Zach returned, he says... Someone on a desert island that chooses to harm themselves or, heaven forbid, even end their life is not acting in an immoral manner. It's their body, and it's their decision as to what to do with it. You're simply assuming that the entire world should operate on the basis of your value scale. Everyone's own individual preferences are subjective. There is no objective good for a person or bad for a person because what's good for Tim is subjective based upon Tim's own personal assessment of the world. Of course, right and wrong or good and evil are objective, interesting statement, but good in the terms of what is good for an individual are subjective. Clearly, suicide or euthanasia are not immoral activities. Who should determine whether or not an individual is to continue living but that individual? To view this action as immoral is to dream of that person as your slave, that you can instruct them as to how they must live their life. Criminality and morality are separate but strongly connected. It would be absurd to make a moral action illegal, although, of course, this happens with some frequency. So I replied again. I said, there's no question that voluntarily taking one's own life is one's right. After all, no one can take it away from you. But whether taking one's own life is good or evil depends on whether the action was rational or irrational, because the standard of good and evil is always about the value of life itself. You'll note I did not use the word morality in my original response. One can behave immorally out of ignorance or stupidity, and not be evil because there's nothing evil about acting upon your knowledge, even if that knowledge is wrong or incorrect. You can't blame somebody for being evil because they ended up doing something that ended up being wrong when they acted for the right reasons. You know, cavemen and primitives generally behaved immorally which led to their short lifespans and to their violent existence and complete vulnerability to nature, which, by the way, is what the term savage refers to. But the cavemen were not evil, unless they consciously rejected their knowledge about how to better their lives in favor of making their lives worse. Then they would have been evil, but we have no way of knowing that. Taking your own life when you have nothing to live for can be very rational taking your own life when you have everything to live for and all the opportunities of happiness open to you is irrational. And therefore, it's evil based on that standard. Even if you want to do it, there might be something else going on. But it's still one's right to do. No one will punish anyone for it. The punishment is in the act of self-destruction itself and can be carried no further. That's the whole point of having these concepts. And then Zach returns. He says, it's very interesting how you have... ...transmuted Christianity of all things. He says, first of all, does anyone ever really act irrationally? Take this quote from Mises, which seems to be on point. Quote, it is the merit of psychoanalysis that it has demonstrated... It e- ...that even the behavior of neurotics and psychopaths is meaningful. That they too act and aim at ends, although we who consider ourselves normal and sane... ...call the reason, reasoning determining their choice of ends nonsensical... ...and the means they choose for the attainment of these ends... ...contrary to purpose, end quote. And so finally, my final response, I said... ...when you ask, does anyone really act irrationally... ...you're asking, does anyone ever act against their own rational self-interest? And the answer is quite demonstrably, yes. Self-sacrifice and altruism, giving up more for less... ...are the social disease of the day. And Ayn Rand wrote about this extensively... Since you've gone off on utterly unrelated tangents, religion and psychoanalysis, to the issue of good and evil and morality itself, I'll leave you with this final thought. With all the talk of choice, and we're talking strictly about moral choices here, not choosing between eating a banana or an apple, what is it that you are choosing? You're choosing between right and wrong, between good and evil, for a very simple reason. Those are the only two options... When it comes to morality, there is no third choice. There simply isn't. If it were, if there were a third choice, it wouldn't be a moral choice, and good and evil wouldn't be part of the conversation. And that's where, basically, my conversation with the libertarian subjectivist ended. It is true that values are subjective. They can be very subjective with inelastic and inelastic demand parameters, I guess. But even subjective values to be attained demand black and white objective actions to achieve them. Even a terrorist who values death and not life is forced by reality to behave objectively relative to his goal, which is destruction. And that's actually what evil people do. That's why people are always so surprised. Man, he's a real intelligent person. He's a really smart guy. Why would he be doing this? Well, you have to be smart to do things like that. You're behaving objectively, even though your value system is subjective and totally non-objective. It's a remarkable contradiction. But that's when somebody gets into trouble. Same thing happens, I suppose, in the economic marketplace. Um, the value of a particular commodity is subjective to varying degrees, but the price of that commodity is objectively determined on a free market that's capable of measuring and implementing all of those subjective values into that one objective price. That's the compromise. A free market value, a true market value. And that's the only place economic security can be found. That's the only way you can know what something is really worth when you know what people really value it at. And now you'll never discover that if there's a government control or a price control or some sort of limit in there because then right away you don't know what they're valuing anymore. The values are artificial. So we're at the quarter hour now, and it's, I think it's time for our first reality check as we go into this very existential discussion It actually ends up with an underwear test, believe it or not. And when we return, we'll be hearing what the religious intrinsicist has to say about his intrinsicism. Back after this.
3: How are you feeling, sir? Not a minute older than the last time you asked me, Bert.
4: Could I pull off the road and get you anything? A cup of coffee? An egg salad sandwich? Some antidepressants of any kind? No, thanks. And not that I was implying that you were poised no to do anything rash. Taken, Bert. And thank you for seeking my assistance on this case. I just want you to know that day or night, rain or shine, come hell or high water, I will always be there. Bert, Bert. you don't have to be brave with me, Mr. Addison. I know what you're feeling—the emptiness, the desperation, the pain, the gnarled fingers of of betrayal reaching down your throat and and crushing your heart within you like like an overripe pomegranate. Come on, sir. Say it with me. They are not long, these days of wine and roses. Bert, Bert. Take three deep breaths right now. I don't know. It's just... There's no explanation. There's no reason. It's like saying two and two equals five or day is night or... We don't really exist. Do we really exist, sir? Can you really prove that we Birch, act? Arch. can you feel your underwear?
3: Yes. Then you really exist.
2: Uh-huh. Blainless. We've been looking all over for you. I, I've been wandering around all night in the fog. You know, I'm, so, I'm still waiting for Hacker to tell me what to do. Hacker's dead. The killer got Hacker? Hacker wasn't murdered by the maniac. Well, well, who then? Was someone from the other faction. What other factions? When do we have other factions? A lot of people have their own ideas about how to achieve results. Naturally, there's tension. Miller formed his own group. I, but so quickly it becomes violent? Hacker asked for it. He was stubborn and hot-headed, despite the fact that his plan wasn't working. You, you sound like you didn't agree with him, either. I'm with Vogel's group. Who's Vogel? What? what, what since when is there a third group? I what? told you, there's disagreement on how to handle things. Yeah, but that's the last thing in the world we need is disagreement. You know, we should be pulling Don't lecture and... me, Kleinman. Are you with us or against us? Gee, I don't know. I don't have enough facts to, so I can choose. I, now, I, listen, Kleinman. You... Lives are at stake. You have to make a choice. You can't threaten him. <laughs> Kleinman, don't take this from him. She's starting ready. Don't get me into worse. Who's this? There you are, Kleinman. Where the hell have you been? Where have you been? For God's sakes, so you wake me up in the middle of the night. Now I hear Hacker's dead. You wanted off just when we needed you. Well, so, I did you know, you didn't tell me anything. Kleinman's joined our faction. From now on, he's with us. Really? Is that true, Kleinman? No, no. Look, the thing to do, we have to cooperate. Are you with
0: them or us? I, I...
2: I don't know. How can I know? I don't I don't know what the alternatives are. You know, is is, is one, one apples? Is one pears? You know, are, are they both tangerines? Let's kill him now before he gives everything away. What are you talking about? I don't know anything. I can't give anything away. Meanwhile, you know, we're here arguing, and, and there's an enemy out there killing us. You know, soon, soon, he, we're gonna do his killing for him. The murderer.
0: He believes he's located the guilty
2: party. It's Spiro, the great clairvoyant. I've heard of him. He solved a lot of important cases. They say all he needs is something to sniff or feel. That's right. He solved some kidnappings. Mr. Spiro is on the verge of revealing the killer.
1: (laughs) Poor Woody Allen, looking for evidence, and he's not being offered any by anyone around him. Couldn't have come up with a better title for Woody Allen's movie, uh, Shadows and Fog, which is both literally and figuratively what is displayed in the black and white movie. The shadows and fog are, of course, to be found in the minds of the people all around him, perhaps himself, too, all terrified by stories of an unknown murderer in their midst. We'll soon revisit that theme, but not before hearing it now from the intrinsicist view on the discussion that we had in the first quarter of the show. This time, Facebook writer Tom joined into the debate. And I suppose, in reaction to my comment to Zach, he he asked, is legalization of suicide the Freedom Party of Canada policy. Now, I hadn't mentioned anything to do with Freedom Party up till now, but I, no doubt my own known association with that party is probably what prompted the question. So I simply responded no and, and directed Tom to our website freedomparty.ca. But then I added, however to the best of my knowledge suicide is not illegal to begin with. What would be an appropriate penalty for suicide? No law can prevent suicide, nor can any law punish it. It's not metaphysically possible. So Tom replied, and he says, thanks, Robert, I just checked on the legality of it. The law was changed in 1972. When I was growing up here in Canada, it was illegal. I think it should be illegal. In order to avoid encouraging it, including the assistance of it. Unfortunately, I am not prepared to answer your question about what would be an appropriate penalty by Canada for suicide. Several might be determined if some people spent some time thinking about it. When I I saw that answer, by the way, I couldn't help but be reminded of that this, you know, it was essentially the same response I got from Ann Coulter when we interviewed her on the show, and I asked her, what was an appropriate penalty for a woman convicted of having an abortion, which, of course, she believes should be illegal. Well, she says they can come up with something, and really, without any regards about the rights of the person they're talking about, or punishing that person, or how they can justify that objectively. I don't think they've thought about it in those terms, or they have, and they've just rejected it in favor of this. And Tom continues, he says, certainly any incentives that would encourage suicide should be eliminated, in my opinion, outside uh, of the realm of politics and inside the realm of metaphysics. I do believe the law of karma would punish suicide. But that's my personal opinion, based on my personal experience, outside of the mundane realm. Hmm. Well, first of all, I don't know what he meant about encouraging suicide. Is he talking about Islamic suicide terrorists here, or about terminally ill patients in great pain and discomfort? And what I think is the probable case, I'm thinking he's probably thinking both. That's what scares me, because that's it, you know, people, oh, it's life, it's just life. Now, normally, I might not even continue an exchange with someone who hasn't. Considered the consequences of what he's advocating and won't answer a lot of my questions and who starts talking about other realms and things like that When the subject is politics, but I guess my own karma caused me to respond with what I expected would be the last comment on this thread Ha ha So I responded I said I'm really quite astounded that anyone would contemplate punishment for suicide How do you punish a dead person? Do you actually believe that this is even possible? Surely you're not referring to punishment in an afterlife, and such a discussion has no place in rational, objective discourse, and will lead to evil and destructive consequences if applied to the real world. But more to the point, if I myself do not have an absolute right to my life, who else does? And by what possible logical or moral reasoning does that other person have a right to my life? Consider that even when suicide was illegal, No one ever discussed a penalty for suicide. However, the penalty for for a failed suicide attempt ranged from imprisonment to the death penalty. I I couldn't believe it. In other words, what the state was telling us is that the individual who possesses his life has no right to take it, but others who do not possess his life do have a right to take it. Are, Are you hearing this? That's what it means, you know. I can think of no greater evil that exists in this world. That's what we see as a problem everywhere. Reality dictates that we have only two options. Either we each own our own lives and have an absolute right to those lives, or the state owns them. The first is the moral option. The second is the immoral option. And there is no third option. And that's where I left it. So that was that, I thought. After all, where else could the conversation really have continued? Well, to the third option, apparently. Tom responds, I believe in a third option that our lives belong to our Creator, and that He is against suicide. And there's that explicit intrinsicism. He believes it just because, faith. I asked for logical, moral reasoning, but I got this intrinsic answer And he continues, he says, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, quote, You are an organ of God, and God, had need, God hath need of you where you be. To excise oneself out of the fabric of life by one's own choice interferes with the plans of the divine. And those souls working under the direction of the ultimate divine being who direct our intersecting paths here in the phenomenological world, uh, period, oh sorry, and then one's destiny might be to be at such and such a place at such and such a time for the purpose of benefiting others benefiting others, altruism but like a town without George Bailey in the movie it's a wonderful life the absence of a person who was meant to be who says that? I don't know where it gets uh, somewhere can cause great evil how does one punish a dead person? well the Romans did it by removing the names of those who were offended who were offending from monuments end quote well, there was an answer I, I was really not prepared for, so I had to what could I say? I said this I said it's impossible to respond to such subjective and imaginary assertions. I could make up any fiction fantasy I wanted to as well, but this would not constitute a discussion, merely an irrational argument about a fundamental disagreement regarding reality itself. What you're talking about is not a third option, and you still haven't defined even one option. In fact, you've avoided the moral argument and the question of what law should exist in our parliament, not in the supernatural. The issue and the subject of discussion was about what law in Canada. You brought it up. I didn't. Is appropriate and why? You wanted a reason from me, and I offered you one. Instead of offering me a reason, you've offered me the supernatural. End of discussion. Can't go anywhere from there. Politically, this means that the person who supports this point of view supports theocracy, not democracy, at the the very least on this issue, if maybe not others. So allow me to conclude this discussion... In supernatural terms if that's how you view things by advocating any law prohibiting suicide it is not God that is enforcing the law but the man-made government that created that law to make any earthly law of governance based on the supernatural is to invite Satan to do God's work the result will be a hell of our own making end quote and that did end that conversation But, you know, here I am thinking, God hath needs? Is that his definition? You know, anything that has needs, how can that be a God? By any definition I've even heard, even among most believers, I've never heard of anybody say God, you know, is in great need, and he has pain, and he suffers, and has all these same symptoms that we have. But one thing's clear. Tom does not believe that we own our own lives, nor even our own liberty, since our choices interfere with the plans of the divine. In a world where God does our thinking and choosing for us, I guess there's no place for rationality and choice. The only choice is you do what you're told, or you get punished by those who are doing the telling, which in this world is never a deity, trust me. Having a destiny is the very opposite of being free and being a rational being. Cows and pigs have destinies. People don't. Beings capable of being moral agents do not have destinies. They have choices, and they accept the responsibility for those choices. People who, in reality, who are making irrational choices are always the ones who talk about destiny, because that's their way of dismissing their own responsibility for their own choices. You know, The Devil Made Me Do It was was uh, comedian Flip Wilson's most famous line. Uh, funny how God, for all his imaginary power, never makes us be good, but the devil, by, by, God, he, by God, he sure gets around a lot. I think Tom needs to take that underwear test, you know, a re- reality check. And speaking of a reality check, we have to take a time check about now. When we return on the other side of our bottom-of-the-hour break, we'll be moving on from the supernatural to Superman. <laughs> because Superman has perhaps infinitely more relevance to the issues of good, e- good and evil, moral and immoral, and right and wrong than the supernatural ever could. But first you've got to hear this scene from uh, Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog. It's a scene that takes us deep into the depths of the fog that exists in so many people's minds. A fog caused by what I think is a conflict between their own selfishness, which is not a bad thing, by the way, and their beliefs in the unreal or in nothingness and nihilism, which are bad things, and to the death that it must inevitably lead to. This is a taste of Woody Allen's writing at its best. Why are we frightened of freedom? Let's find out.
4: No, I don't want to interrupt anything. I just want to rest a for a minute. I, oh, come in. Come in. Come in. You're welcome. It's late. There's no one here but us. What's
2: your name,
3: sweetheart? Kleinman. Well, sit down, come
4: Mr. Kleinman. Let me get
2: you something to drink. It's Jack's one of our regulars.
3: I find this atmosphere a lot more stimulating than university.
2: <laughs> as long as we do the stimulating. <laughs> That's right.
3: I was just pointing out to these lovely ladies the metaphors of perversion.
4: Oh, my goodness, such big words. You know, the chief magistrate likes me to tie him up hand and foot. He
3: pays me for Exactly that. my point. You take away his freedom and he becomes blissful, <laughs> delighted, sexually aroused. He's frightened of his freedom. Oh, he's frightened, is he? What's he frightened of? Who knows? Whatever his impulses are. Oh. Power, lust, murder.
0: There are laws against murder. Haven't you heard about that?
3: Maybe certain people obey only their own laws.
0: Is that what they teach at the university? To be superior?
3: <laughs> no, 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 no. We learn facts. Nothing but facts. Logic. And mathematics. And how to become depressed. Your problem is you don't believe in anything. Oh, spoken by a true whore who believes only in cash. Oh, better, better false gods than no god at all. Huh? <laughs> Here's a thoughtful looking man. What are your views on divine matters? Excuse me, you, me? I'm asking you if you believe in God. It's, it's
2: incredible, it's the third time tonight somebody asked me that exact same question. You know, I, I would love to, believe me. I, I know it would be much happier. Yeah, but, but you can't. I can't, no, it's just, you know. You doubt his
3: existence and you can't make the leap of faith necessary and I can't make the leap of faith necessary to believe in my own existence.
0: Here's your drink, Clyman.
3: Yeah, that's fine. That's tricky. You keep making jokes until the moment comes and you've really got to face death.
2: Why are we on such a morbid subject? I, I just, you know,
4: that's the future. You know, is not the future? No, no, the trick is
0: to have as much wine, as many men, as many laughs as you can until they carry you out in a pine box, and then don't go easily.
4: When I go, I want to die in my sleep without ever knowing.
3: At some world, when the nicest gift you can wish for someone you really care for is that they die in their sleep. If I thought that there was nothing except this, I'd kill myself. I've thought of it. Believe me, there have been many times when my brain has said, why not? I mean, there's no point to anything. But somehow my blood always said, live, live. And I always listen to my blood.
4: I think we'll
2: suspend testing for the time being, Asabi. The results are substantially complete. I'm very pleased. Mr. Luther, I don't understand. Superman has proved
4: himself unbeatable, and you have failed to frighten him off. Well, yes. He's tough. In fact, he's the opponent I've been waiting for.
2: But unbeatable? No. Superman has a defect. He has a chink in his armor. What is that? Superman has morals. He has ethics. He's unrelentingly good. Because of that, I will win. Morning Faust. Another beginning to another fine day in Metropolis. Let's kill some
1: pigeons. a poetic piece from the 90s TV show Lois and Clark, which is one of my favorite Superman interpretations. You know, Faust was not just Lex Luthor's falcon, which he let loose upon the pigeons, although that's the poetry of that scene. Faust, or Dr. Johann Faustus, was a famous 16th century magician. Faust was a man of great scientific acquirements, and according to legendary tradition... He made use of his powers to inspire his countrymen with a firm belief that he had dealings with the devil. And that's what I got on my world reference encyclopedia. In other words, he made use of knowledge of the real world to use and spread superstition, fear, and unreality upon the ignorant. In this respect, Faust offers a shining example of what we might objectively call evil. But the superstitious and the, you know, they were the pigeons of his age, and it was not Faust who terrified them, it was their own superstitions. They, too, had a responsibility in this sad state of affairs, but that doesn't get Faust off the hook for his motivations. You know, it's no secret that evil people depend upon the morality of good people in order to have a victim. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Superman in modern mythology is pretty much as close to a god as any character we might imagine. Faster than a speeding bullet, x-ray vision, he can zap you with those laser beams that emanate from his eyes, freeze you blue with the mere power of breathing on you, cannot be physically harmed or destroyed, you know, kryptonite aside. You can go into outer space without being affected for too long, and, you know, you get the general idea. And yet this This god, with all of his singular powers that no one else on Earth possesses, consistently risks being defeated by mere mortals, according to Lex Luthor, because Superman adheres to a moral code. And like all criminals and terrorists, Lex Luthor knows that moral codes limit the action of the moral, of the good. In this case, Superman, who he thinks is going to be his pigeon because of it. The fun of the show, of course, is in watching Superman stick to his moral code, which, by the way, prohibits him from initiating force or fraud against anyone and from interfering with the free choices of others. And yet he still defeats the Faustian and Lex Luthor. So I guess no wonder he's super, that's why they call him that. Now, how can we recognize good and evil, especially in our midst, well, the sad fact is that we can't, unless we have some some evidence of the presence of evil. How many of us can even define what good and evil are, or what morality and immorality are, or what right and wrong are, even in the simplest of ways? You, you wouldn't believe the contradictions you'll hear. On top On top of all the terrorist plot stories we've been exposed to at an increasing pace recently, over the past week or so, we've been hearing a lot about... That nightmare of evil that was occurring in Cleveland, after which suspect Ariel Castro was charged with raping and kidnapping three women constantly for a decade. And then, just as I was preparing this week's show, the tragic news of the murder of Tim Bosma was just becoming to be announced through live news coverage. And, you know, the speed with which many members of the public resorted to blaming or focusing on some object that has nothing to do with the issues at hand was quite alarming, actually. Um, You know, immediate public reaction I heard to the news were variants of the following. And of course, we all know where this came from. It was just a truck. Well, no, whatever it was about with regards to the POSMA story, it wasn't about a truck, as such. I mean, this case has so many inconsistencies in what we've heard reported so far, including a millionaire suspect who has no money problems. It's, It's just too weird to know what the real story is here. And the only person who really had a reasonable reason to use the statement you know, it's just a truck, was Bosma's wife. Because at the time she was saying it, she was actually offering the kidnapper a way out. By in effect lying to him and suggesting he's really not evil, it really is about the truck, isn't it? And then the rest of us get on the bandwagon. But the public reaction I heard suggested most people really wanted to believe that it was about the truck, and even worse that other objects and activities have something to do with this, even though they don't. Heard a caller call in and say, well, we've got to get rid of computers, and we've got to get rid of technology, and, and blame Kijiji, because that was where uh, he, he advertised his truck, among other places, by the way. Uh, by the way, Kijiji is no different from, from a newspaper ad, or, or you know, <laughs> anything like that. It's just a way to get in contact. Another caller said, uh, video games are the problem, and cited Grand Theft Auto. You know, because it's just a truck, it's just a game. And of course you hear, bring back the death penalty, and one or two others I'll get to in a moment. But it was just amazing how high the emotions were. But it's interesting how involved the public has gotten in these two high-profile crime cases, while there are other equally disturbing murder accounts that don't seem to get the big publicity, or the emotional response. Because I haven't heard much public excitement about these cases. I mean, just in one day's paper in the April 27th National Post, there was one tiny article at the top of one page that read as follows. Quote, Two men were killed in violent incidents in Toronto Thursday night, including one who police say was stabbed to death as he emerged from a shower during a home invasion. In a separate incident, incident, about an hour earlier, officers were called to an East End housing complex, found a 20-year-old man with gunshot wounds. He was pronounced dead at the scene. In the home invasion incident, police say the two suspects are described as blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, wait a minute, two home invasions, and that was just on Thursday night? And we didn't hear the stories of these, so we didn't have the time to get all excited and emotionally involved. You know, there are obviously a lot of bad people running around out there, and we tend to get con- totally absorbed on the few stories that we of course know about but the crime stories that affect us are the ones we hear and that we can relate to and from what I've been hearing, I think a lot of people are kind of confused in what they've been saying, making them sound a lot like the angry mobs that Woody Allen had to deal with in the earlier scenes in uh, Shadows and Fog one common reaction you hear from someone in the middle of an emotional outburst is of what to do about the evil that we apparently see in our midst And that's to argue that the accused or the convicted should have no rights. Heard that a few times. And let's be clear about this. You can't say someone has no rights because they've committed a crime. Because unless the the criminal has rights, then we as a society have no right to prosecute him. That's the joke of that. It is his having rights that justifies our punishing him. We gave them a license to say, look, you can move among us freely, but, but you destroyed that. Now, this is the consequence. It's not, about, it's not about taking away anything. It's a consequence to an action. But the problem is that the morality of our politicians and community leaders is really not so far removed from that of a lot of common criminals. They just pretend to be more civilized about it, especially when they're transferring wealth and making laws on life and death that really should not be in their prerogative. But the point to be made is this. You can't deprive someone of their rights, you can deprive them of their life, and of their liberty, and of their property, which are the consequences of having rights. And this brings me to the main point here. Now back to our issue of good and evil, moral and immoral, and wrong and right. You know, these are my own definitions, by the way, because I'm, I'm spreading these out a bit. I think I'm looking at them in a different sense. I'm looking at them in the sense of judgment, When I looked at the definition of the good by Ayn Rand, it was actually the good. That's how she put it. It was in the lexicon. And the good is defined as, all that which is proper to the life of a rational being is the good. All that which destroys it is the evil. And she adds, through the voice of John Galt, for centuries the battle of morality was fought between those who claim that your life belongs to God and those who claim that it belongs to your neighbors between those who preach that the good is self-sacrifice for the sake of ghosts in heaven and those who preach that the good is self-sacrifice for the sake of incompetence on earth. And no one came to say that your life belongs to you and that the good is to live it. Well, that's the good. And morality, she defines, as a code of values to guide man's choices and actions. The choices and actions that determine the purpose and course of his life. Ethics as a science deals with discovering and defining such a code. The purpose of morality is to teach you not to suffer and die, but to enjoy yourself and to live. And that's what escapes a lot of people. So, back to good and evil. You know, I I realize that good and evil... Moral and immoral, right and wrong. They can kind of be used ambiguously and interchangeably in a lot of ways, but it suddenly struck me maybe we're making a mistake there, especially if we're thinking in terms of judgment. And here are some of the distinctions that I sort of ran into, and I'm still playing with this. This is an idea in progress. And, you know, if you don't know what evil is, you can't really know what good is or why. And so I'm going to separate these things. Good and evil, I'm going to say, have to do with intentions and motivations whether conscious or subconscious. A person, I would say, and this is in the judgment sense, not in the what is sense, but when would you say a person's good or evil? I think it's when he's willing to violate the consent of others, willing to harm another for personal gain. I think that has to do with the intention value, the tension part of it. And then there's moral and immoral, which have to do with actions, with consequences. And very importantly, ...with the acceptance or rejection of personal responsibility for those actions. And that comes down to the self. You might end up doing something incorrect that was immoral, but accept responsibility, then you're not an immoral person. Because we can do immoral things out again, out of of ignorance and out of not knowing. Or error, even error. And then finally, right and wrong. I think that's the reality check. I think it has to do with whether one's intentions, whether one's motivations or actions are in in accordance with reality and reason. It's, uh, you know, the underwear test. Um, Knowledge, of course, or the lack of it, is the critical component of the latter two distinctions, morality and what is right. But a person doesn't need to understand evil to be evil. He can be evil without even knowing it. But you do have to have knowledge to know what is moral and what is right. In fact, you need a little more than knowledge you need understanding. And there's a difference there, too, and I think understanding is the key to combating irrationality. Um, There is a distinction between knowing and understanding. Let's face it, let's give an example. You know, almost everything alive from animals to humans quote-unquote knows that the sun will rise tomorrow. But only human beings are capable of understanding why and how the sun rises every morning if they choose to be rational, and if they choose to commit themselves to reality. Otherwise, they'll never discover that. Once something is truly understood, not merely known, no persuasive force on Earth can dislodge that truth, that knowledge, from its holder. The only way to enforce non-knowledge, be it superstition or religious faith, which by its own definition is non-knowledge, upon rational objective people who, who is to, or upon rational objective people is to use physical force against them, right? That's the only way you can do it. Or it's threat as a response to any expression of disagreement with official dogma. And if you want any examples of this, just read any history book. Interesting. On April 27th, the National Post featured a full-page article about a former shoe, uh, shoemaker from rural Alberta who has turned spiritual leader John de Reuter claimed to be, quote, the living embodiment of truth. He operated under one company called Oasis Edmonton Incorporated, under which he posed as a, quote, philosopher and teacher, end quote. And one of the benefits of being this philosopher and teacher was a three-way sexual relationship that he had with two sisters, who are now suing him for emotional and psychological pain. Under their picture in the article it reads, Benita von Sass said she was told to sexually submit to God's will, while Katrina von Sass says she was John de Reuter's adult interdependent partner, end quote. Again, religion and psychology unite once again to avoid the reality that they now all find themselves faced with. The two of them used to, ha- used to help DeRuiter kill his pigeons, who were the religious attendees who would show up and fill his Oasis conference center, just to get a glimpse of their hero. And after they paid their $8 entrance fee, DeRuiter's presentation would go something like this, and I quote from the National Post. This is hilarious. After he you know, gets these big giant screens on, puts on his microphone, and then, quote, Mr. DeRuiter stared ahead in silence, then slowly scanned the room, left, then right as if assessing his audience. Five minutes passed, then ten, then twenty. Nothing was said. Nothingness, emptiness. These are his message. Let go of everything he counsels. Allow the self its layers of death. <laughs> End quote. Can you believe it? And there, to top it all off, in the center of the page, reads a subheading, quote, You don't need to understand, or, sorry, you don't need to understand what you know ...for you to believe in what you know, end quote. Sound familiar? Sounds just like the character contemplating suicide... ...in Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog. (laughs) There it is. You know, political activist and commentator... ...Pamela Geller was in Toronto this past Monday. Big big, big kerfuffle about her appearance. And she said one thing. She said, this is what we're up against. This is the disconnect. We're living in an age of anti-reason. Truth is the recognition of reality... We can avoid reality, yeah, we can do that, but we can't avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. Which, I guess, is just another way of saying that we can't avoid reality. Nor can we avoid our rational selfishness if we really want to be happy and satisfied with our lives. And so to prove that Ayn Rand lives in our final show break of the day we will hear a demonstration of just what it was that Ayn Rand meant in distinguishing selfishness from altruism and in caring for others, because this is all about being totally selfish.
0: I
2: know I should be happy, but I feel so dissatisfied.
3: Well, Fraser, it's no accident that you're going through this on the day that you receive your Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, duh! No, I'm sorry, I'm
2: sorry. I'm
0: just acting out. No, no, no. Please, please. Continue, please,
3: please. <clears throat> As you know, men in our society commonly define themselves by their careers. Yes, I'll come to that. Yeah.
2: In fact, there's nothing I'm more proud of than my career. It's because I, I love to help people. I always have.
3: All right, refresh my memory. Wasn't it your mother who first sparked your interest in psychiatry? Yes, it was.
2: I I remember the the exact day. Uh, I was eight. And I'd come home crying because one of the older boys had thrown my copy of the Fountainhead under a bus. (laughs) My mother explained to me, it wasn't because he didn't like the way I walked or because I wore an ascot to school. (laughs) Because he didn't like himself. And at that very moment, I became a student of human behavior. It was as if someone had given me an instruction manual explaining why people acted the way they did.
0: There was a time whenever you had a problem first person you'd come to. That hasn't changed. I don't know, kid. We've been around a lot of bins. Just want you to know if you need anything, I'm here. I know, Daddy. Tell you something about me. I'm I'm a selfish son of a buck. I don't just want to help you. I need to help you. There's something kicking around inside of you, causing you a lot of pain. I want to make it go away, not just for you, for me. Really. That would make me feel like a million bucks. I know that, Daddy. When you were five, I could make it go away with a kiss or a quarter. But I don't suppose that does the trick anymore. I don't think so. I don't know. There's really no pain. I'm just confused about some things, that's all. No big deal. Well, a little kiss to grow on. I'd better get upstairs. If I if I stay away too long, that damn cat jumps up on the bed, snuggles up next to your mother, I'm out of luck. Daddy. I'm sorry. Hey, don't be sorry. doesn't matter. Like I said, I'm selfish. Totally selfish.
1: Yeah, he's, he's so selfish that he won't even disturb the cat if the cat beats him to the bed before he gets back. There is selfishness for you. Now, there is a father who truly loves his daughter. He's taken a great burden off her shoulders by letting her know that he is acting selfishly. He's also letting her know that his desire to help is not a self-sacrifice, it's not a duty. He's not doing it out of pity. It is his unhappiness that's the cause of his wanting to help, not hers. And this is important. The fact of her unhappiness is the cause of nothing. A father who did not love his daughter might get great pleasure out of seeing her unhappy or getting what's coming to her or some such variant of schadenfreude, you know, getting pleasure from the misfortune of others. So if that kind of father were to, quote, help his daughter, he wouldn't be motivated by his own selfishness, but by altruistic, irrational forms of selfishness driven by something other than the true welfare of his daughter, like, for example, his own need to be seen as a good father of some sort, even if that's not how he might particularly feel. But luckily for Maddie in this scene from Moonlighting, her father needs to help her. And if he could, it would make him, not her, feel like a million bucks. It's a win-win situation. Both father and daughter would be beneficiaries of his generosity if she could accept it. Had his motivation been altruism and self-sacrifice, it would have been done out of some sort of duty and obligation, perhaps even resentful. Her, her, Her happiness would be seen as coming at the cost of his unhappiness whatever form that might take. But because he was motivated by rational selfishness, the good, his daughter's happiness became critical to his own because he valued his daughter. He needed to help her for his own happiness' sake. Meanwhile, you got Frazier there who says, I love to help people, to his own psychiatrist, and whose desire to help people is not really genuine. It's not a selfish desire. That's what the show has been about. We watch (laughs) Frazier. He's always mad at people and putting them down. Frazier doesn't need to help people. He loves his career, and there's nothing wrong with that unless he's feeling guilty about it which is his problem, he has that conflict he has to help people because he needs to maintain his sense of power and superiority over them, you know that's the bad cholesterol (laughs) of, of selfishness the irrational selfishness that is the cause of his own admitted misery when he says, I know I should be happy, but I feel so dissatisfied selfishness is the key to love and generosity, it's the objective way to live and that's the actual truth and I thought I might get some time at the end of the show. How much time do we have, Ed? About a minute or two? About a minute. Just uh, I just wanted to let everyone know that uh, Robert is busy on a couple of uh, Just Right projects, including our filming of the Yaron Brook event that w- occurred in Toronto. He's really busy this week with it, and he, uh, he was originally going to show up on the show, and then he said, well, no, he's just put too much time into it, hasn't got enough time left, and still has to finish the darn thing. But there's been a lot of changes on our website. Check it out, W. Uh, justrightmedia.org. org made some major changes this weekend, including fully indexed uh, episodes, headlines, quarter time markers. You can even find out who hosted each show. You can even find out, if you want to know, where we got our bumper bites from. There's a special uh, page call, uh, called Bonus Material there now. Check it out. A lot of things have changed. But I'd like to leave you with this thought. The reason that there even are 300 episodes of Just Right is because those of us involved in the effort are selfish. We're totally selfish. So I guess as long as we can keep ourselves happy doing it, and as long as CHRW Radio is happy airing it, although the views expressed in this program may not necessarily agree, (laughs) and as long as there are a lot of selfish listeners out there who are enjoying the show, well, maybe we'll do 301 next week. Don't you just love it? Freedom, that is. And that's why we'll continue on our journey in the right direction. Join us again next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
0: Well, Roz, I think we have just enough time for one more call.
1: Okay, we have Andy from
4: Bremerton on line three.
0: Hello, Andy. I'm listening. Am I on? Yes, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, you're on the air. Hello? You're on. Am I on? Not anymore. (laughs)